a listener production. Over the last three episodes of The Next Billion Seconds, we've been asking the same question from multiple directions. The same question that pretty much everyone connected to the automobile industry wants answered. Are we really at the tipping point to electrification of the vehicle fleet? Will the next billion cars be electric? Okay, not entirely, but an accelerating plurality of them. And perhaps even by 2030, a majority the indications are promising. Special correspondent Drew Smith took us on a tour of the European market, which seems to be moving toward electrification faster than anyone had predicted. But that's not going to be without its problems. Transitioning away from fossil fuels, it was never going to be easy. And as co-host Sally Dominguez always likes to point out, this isn't really a story about electricity. It's about our ability to store electricity in other forms, such as hydrogen and ammonia and paste, the future of fuel is already here. How we put those fuels to work, that's something I looked at. Because when you take the engine out of the equation, you rewrite the design rules for vehicles. They're smaller, lighter, cheaper, and look nothing like the family sedan. Instead, we may be heading into a world where electrobikes dominate the urban zone, while vehicles that emphasize cargo dominate in the suburbs. It's all possible. But is it real? Today, I'm Mark Pesci, and the coming next billion seconds are the most important in history as technology transforms the way we live, work, and power our civilization. Is this the change we've all been waiting for? Is electrification the new promised land? Sally and Drew join me to explore these questions and make some predictions for a post-carbon future. Hello, Sally. Hello, Mark. So excited to be back and having a chat. And special correspondent, Drew Smith. Hello, Drew. Hello, Mark. And hello, Sal. It's lovely to be back with you. It feels as though we are at the tipping point with electrification. Am I dreaming? Or can we start to substantiate that hope that we're at this tipping point with evidence from what we can see both in the world of politics and in the auto industry. I must say yes, just from my perspective, over here in America, where suddenly the clouds have backed away and the sun has come out, if you know what I mean. So we're back in the climate deals, we're doing new green deals. But like what's interesting, I think, is where I live in Marin, which has always been the pointy end of EV and the uptake of everything. Um, it's right near Silicon Valley, for those of you who haven't come and visited me yet. And uh What's interesting is that the general conversation amongst all the people I know is, should we get a second EV? Everybody I know, this is not an exaggeration, everybody I know, except me, has an electric vehicle or a hybrid, but a plug-in. And now they're deciding whether, considering that we have constant power outages, because we're in America, whether they can afford to have a second one and whether they should put solar in. So it's not a, why are we buying EV at all? We've moved on. So, yes, we've passed the tipping point over here. But how about Australia, Mark? Yeah, Australia is having its own moment around this where it's pretty clear that 
there would be a market for EVs. There are absolutely no price supports or rebates or anything like that for EVs. You do see more and more Teslas. I think the Teslas are really the only EV that you see in any quantity. I think that Nissan is selling the Leaf here, but they don't seem to be selling it in big numbers. What's I think really interesting, and maybe Drew, you want to talk to this, Hyundai has just introduced the Ionic 5. It will be shipping, I think, in Europe and America later this year. It's kind of a fastback-y shape. It's quite pretty. And to Sal's point, you can also plug it into the mains in your house and it will charge your house at least on DC for a period of time. I think actually probably also on AC. So you can use it as an electric backup. When you see a big mainstream car maker introducing a big mainstream model like an Ionic, is that also telling us that the transition is on? Uh, I mean, Mark, we are we are just about to kind of crest the wave and come crashing down the other side. I mean, as I said, uh, during during the episode where I explored the European perspective, you know, Volkswagen's looking at at, at dropping thirty new EVs between now and twenty twenty five. That's thirty thirty new EVs over the next four years. It's remarkable to see how quickly the the European market in particular has evolved. And I think what's super interesting is we're starting to see models come in at all sorts of different price points. So they're about to become far more accessible. Uh, Let's not forget that Ford has said it will not produce any petrol cars after 2030. Right. I mean, if we're talking about looking ahead, you know, I think it's it's fascinating how not only are our big um, classic oil suppliers all diversifying into green hydrogen, that's for another day perhaps, but that the biggest car makers, some of the biggest car makers are declaring that gas is dead, which is kind of sad, but also kind of necessary. But also what I find fascinating is that we've got car makers getting into the utilities business, creating their own infrastructure networks to keep their cars topped up while uh, while we're out on the road. So while I was chatting with the barista before I came into studio to talk about this and I said, we're doing a show about electrification, his immediate response to me was, is there infrastructure? Right. And that's the charging infrastructure and all of this. Sal, you look like you have something to say about that. I so do. And I I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna like use my futurist skills to predict what Drew will say in the future. And I'm gonna push it out there that living again in a place where every single target, every single shopping mall, every single car park is full of charging stations. America, California, come on. Um you know, hydrogen has already got charging stations down in Southern California and a couple in the Bay Area where I live. You know, there aren't that many charging stations in Australia, but it's not that hard to put them in, is it? Especially if you run them on solar. And yeah, there are barely any hydrogen charging stations. But again, look at Australia now. You know, I remember when there were literally six charging stations in the whole of Australia, then there were 22. Now there's more. This happens. Like, but for people to say we're not going to develop future cars because the existing scenario doesn't support it is the most backwards type of thinking I can possibly think of. End of rant. Go. Look, I mean, it was really fascinating speaking to Richard Hackforth-Jones around this, and his view is very clearly that we, we've passed the tipping point for EVs uh, in, in Europe. 
Um, he's really skeptical, as is the CEO of Volkswagen Group, for example, that we will ever get to the same kind of tipping point with hydrogen. You only have to look at the installed infrastructure base for for the UK. There's about 13 hydrogen charging stations. Richard, when he's asked this question about uh, where can I charge my electric car, he'll point to the nearest electric socket. And yes, it's slightly facile. It is slightly facile because if everybody did that, we would overload the network. But I think, you know, what we also tapped into in our conversation was you know, this idea that you have to kind of completely run your battery down and then completely brim it like you used to with a with a petrol tank in a car, that's just not the best way to use an EV, right? You you kind of like, you go off, you do your shop, you plug it in for 20 minutes while you're, you're in grabbing some groceries and then you pop off to work and then you'll plug it in there. So you're always topping it up like a cell phone, right? You're not running it down and brimming it like a petrol powered car. So, Sal, to the point around hydrogen and fuels, Hyundai has announced and introduced, and there was a big spread in the Christmas issue of The Economist about their semi-truck, the Scient, which is powered by hydrogen fuel cells. And the thing that they seem to be promoting about why you would use this rather than using electricity is that the recharging time is eight minutes. To refuel a hydrogen tank using their system takes eight minutes Is this effectively a stopback gap? Because every generation of battery technology gets faster and more efficient. And the time it takes to top a battery up to 80% goes from half an hour to 15 minutes to 10 minutes now. So is this hydrogen window closing as batteries get better? I think that, in fact, we will soon be in a... Okay, I was going to say a post-battery world, but like that's not true. But I think what's going to happen is with the demand on lithium iron, with the demand on battery materials, you have hydrogen, you have ammonia as alternative storage sources. So why use a battery at all if you have something you can carry on board that does it in a different way, generates electricity in a different way. And just this year, the game changer, the massive game changer is the ability to store hydrogen as a paste. It comes in a removable cartridge. You simply add water to the tank. How is anyone going to argue with the future where you can have a cartridge of pasty hydrogen, you plug it in, you fill up the water and off you go? To me, this is like going to wipe the floor with this concept that you have to go charge for half an hour. It's going to wipe it because replaceable, insertable fuel cartridges and fuel cells are the future. And and look, I mean, let's let's take a step back for a second. We, we all, or, you know, many people like to talk about EVs as being the harbinger of the green revolution. And we all know that actually once you start thinking about where the electricity actually comes from. That's right. Not necessarily as green as we'd like to think, right? Um, particularly in Germany where... Can you believe they still like to burn brown coal to produce electricity? So the electricity that you're putting into your brand new Volkswagen ID3 is just as dirty as, as you know any other fossil fuel. Whereas in the UK, where we get an enormous proportion of our electricity these days from renewables, EVs start to stack up from a total kind of CO2 emissions perspective. And and then as you've alluded to, Sal, like the supply chain issues around the supply of of precious metals uh, for the creation of EVs is just another thing that is not a solved problem yet. So it's not like we're talking about, you know, the silver bullet. We may not be talking about a silver bullet per se. 
And we're clearly seeing that once you solve one problem, you highlight all of the other problems. And I guess that's also part of the process here is that a transition in a climate change scenario is not a one-off. It is a process of discovering where your next weakest link is and going from there. Sal. Yeah, what I think is interesting is when we're talking about low-carbon hydrogen production, all the major players, Shell, BP, Engie, have invested in low-carbon hydrogen heading towards green. In fact, from 2019 to in October 2020, nine times more investment. And at the same time, just this year, Aussie researchers have come up with a green low-heat way to create green ammonia, which is yet another way to store energy, miles more efficient, 10 times more efficient than a lithium-ion battery. So I think we're actually on the cusp of something that's even bigger than what people traditionally think of as a battery-based EV technology. All right, Sal, this is Series 5, and we are making specific predictions in Series 5. So I'm going to ask you to make a prediction for 2030, what is the mix in fuels between petrol, EV, and hydrogen in the regular vehicle fleet? Not in the specialty vehicle fleet, but what do you think that looks like in 2030? Uh, let's say that 2030, considering all the markets and a bunch of them won't have the infrastructure, I reckon I'm being, I'm an optimist, you know that. Let's go 50% convection engine. Let's go 30% electric as in classic electric with a battery. And I'm going to go 20% hydrogen slash ammonia because I think ammonia is about to take a massive hit as an upwards hit, not a downwards hit. Drew, again, the framing idea for series five is we're making predictions for 2030. Where do you want to put your markers down? What does the fleet look like? What's the percentage being maybe manufactured by the big guys versus being manufactured by smaller producers in 2030? You know, that's such a difficult question to answer right now because we see new startups live and die almost on a monthly basis. I, I'm kind of more interested in what's going to happen with the electrification of the European fleet and, you know, like which proportion of the market is going to remain powered by fossil fuels. I, I'm pretty much certain that by 2030, we're going to have 80 to 90% of the European fleet electrified and the remaining 20 kind of to 10% is going to be like absolute primo top of the market type stuff that will always have to run on fuel to keep people like Sal and I satisfied, keep our petrol head hearts beating. So, Drew, one of the things that I took a look at in my own episode was this idea of the mutant vehicle, that as soon as you migrate away from having to have an engine as part of a vehicle, you completely change the, the design envelope and you get, of course, all of these weird scooters. Now, when I was doing research for this series, I went around Sydney and photographed all of the mutant electric vehicles I could find. One of them that I immediately texted to the two of you because it blew me away was a scooter that had a seat stuck into the middle of it, which I was like, I don't even know how you balance on that, but it's an electric scooter with a seat on it. There's all these weird electric vehicles. But in your Looking Out newsletter, you took a look at some crazy stuff that's happening in China right now. 
Right, absolutely. And I think uh, there's this amazing article out at the moment, uh, came out just, just this week or last week, saying that the next phase of mobility is not being planned in Mountain View. It's two guys in Shandong putting panelling around a golf cart because they think grandpas will like it. It's a car's pitch to workers, not VCs. For a large chunk of the world, this is what electric looks like. And I think, you know, in, in the West right? We like to think of EVs as sort of being this trickle-down technology. It started with the Tesla Model S, which was, you know, designed to ape sort of a, a fairly conservative but ultimately attractive luxury car, right, as we knew it, because that's who they were pitching their cars at. The reality is, you know, the vast majority of the world is not buying that. And I think what is absolutely fascinating is seeing the low-end innovation in places like China where they're taking, you know, componentry that's being, uh, you know, repurposed from consumer electronics, consumer electrical goods, and turning them into electric mobility devices with prices that range from like 600 bucks up to about two and a half thousand. And then what we're starting to see is the emergence of a new class that is just a little bit above that. You know, we're talking two and a half to three and a half thousand US dollars, which doesn't look like a golf cart for your grandfather. It actually starts to look like a dignified, aspirational vehicle. And this starts to become an absolute game changer for people wanting to buy into automobility for the first time. Can I add to that also? What's really interesting is that if you've got renewable energy and it's abundant, then you don't have to have a vehicle that's necessarily the most efficient at taking that energy and converting it. If we have abundant sustainable energy, renewables, then, you know, people can put together all sorts of things that putter along and do all sorts of stuff because they now don't have to squeeze every last ounce of efficiency out of that energy source, which is another game changer. And what's fascinating about these products in in China is that a lot of them are still using lead acid batteries, to this point, absolutely, Sal. They're using lead-acid batteries because, you know, technology, the, 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 the electricity is far cheaper than fossil fuels. Uh, it is relatively abundant uh, and people can't afford lithium-ion as a technology. Mm. And sodium-ion is the other one, right? So it's, we're getting more salt batteries. I mean, I think we got soil batteries happening in Latin America. I mean, this whole idea of if you don't have to have maximum efficiency and you've got renewable energy, let's all make a battery. Woohoo! <laughs> so does this mean that what we think of as the fleet is really going to change much more than we had really thought about, even when we started the series The Next Billion Cars a couple of years ago, when it looked just like kind of the passenger vehicle was the thing that was in transition. But that that Next Billion Vehicles is this very weird, very broad array of different sizes, different shapes, different powertrains, different batteries, all of these things. That, in fact, the future is now multiple but what does that then mean if you're a Toyota who's really geared up for making six or eight million vehicles a year? Uh, I mean, that's that's and I mean, talk about picking an excellent example, because Toyota was a was a company that until recently had hitched their wagon to hydrogen. Right. And in the past 12 months have decided that they are going to diversify away from that because they realize they need to they they need to increase the base that they can cover. I, what's 
I don't have a direct answer to the question, but what I'm finding really interesting is that one of the things that we discussed in the next billion cars was this idea that cities are becoming more and more hostile to owner-operated vehicles, right? And so are we going to see OEMs, automakers, start to try and take ownership of the provision of personal mobility in these urban environments. So will we actually, from OEM, start to see a contraction in the the number of models that they make and they actually become more specialised towards, you know, either dealing with urban environments or extra urban environments? And, I mean, this then points to the kinds of vehicles that we see, like uh, an EV that you need in Sydney needs good air conditioning. It doesn't really need a good heater. An EV that you need in Winnipeg doesn't really need <laughs> good air conditioning, but it clearly needs a good heater and it needs something to keep the battery warm when you're trying to start it when it's minus 40 and things like that. And so does that then mean that the OEM is going to then adapt their design off of, a, I guess, off of a framework that gives them a specific thing that can be targeted. Sal? Oh, just to add to that, thinking about Texas right now, where people have actually been living in their cars because the only place with a heater. Um, I have this little side project with this UK studio, Quartier, where we're actually designing a new genre of car that's half home, half vehicle. And I think, again, you know, we have much as the drivetrain is open slather for innovation right now, the packaging and the function is open slather, you know, and, and perhaps, yeah, no no owner-operated stuff in the city, but on the other hand, are people going to push back against that and do they merely want something that perhaps splits in two or four and becomes a smaller thing for the city and you park the rest outside? Mark, I, I mean, this is something that uh, my my co-conspirator Joe Simpson has explored in, in, in our newsletter, Looking Out, um, particularly uh, at a, a company called Arrival, in the United Kingdom who are getting into the delivery truck and bus market. Um, But there's also a startup out of California called Canoe. And what they're doing is completely reimagining from the ground up, just not just the vehicle itself, but the means of manufacture such that these companies can set up micro factories in different markets around the world and adapt those vehicles to the prevailing market conditions in a way that's far more agile and far less capital intensive than traditional auto manufacturing uh, requires. And to this point, the US Postal Service announced an enormous order for new vehicles that are built on a similar modular platform that can use petrol or can use electrification, depending on the needs of the local community. All right, folks, to just start to wrap this up, because it will probably be about six months before we have another of these kinds of conversations. Where will we be in our transition? Where will we be in our tipping points in the next six months? Okay, Sal, you go. Do you mean personally, like, for instance, could I say Mark and Drew within six months will suddenly go, oh my God, she wasn't wrong. Green hydrogen is a massive future. I mean, are we talking that sort of personal level or are we talking more the world scope, which would be, huh, we thought we didn't need cars. We thought we were going to share and COVID and disaster and resilience and decentralization shows us that not only do we need our car, we kind of need to know how to DIY it to an extent. I think our whole attitude and relationship with our vehicles is in a state of massive change and overhaul. I'm very excited about it myself. 
I feel like I'm always the resident conservative in these conversations. So I, true to form, I'm going to be fairly conservative. I reckon in six months, thinking about the total European new car market, I would be surprised if we haven't actually reached, say, 40% market penetration for, for electrified vehicles in the EU. And that, that would be pretty significant. I think that would be a, a really strong signal that not only have we kind of reached the tipping point, but we're actually well, well past it. And my own prediction is in six months' time, the 10 largest automakers in the world will have all announced full plans for their EV rollouts. Whether or not that's a full transition away from petrol is another question, but they will all have fully declared EV plans. All right, now, Sal, you have a new book out. Do you want to tell us about that? I'd love to, since we're talking about decentralization and resilience. Thanks, Mark. Um, my book is called Epic Resilience. It's a resilience strategy, emotional, physical, intellectual, and creative resilience. It's thriving through chaos and change, and it is out. I'm very excited about it. All right, now, Drew, tell us how everyone who's listening can subscribe to the amazing Looking Out newsletter, where you do really go into detail in all of this. Well, thank you, Mark. I was going to say, if you can't wait six months for the next installment, then sign up for Looking Out, where you may get an update next week. You may get an update in a month's time. If you want to know more, head to Automobility, that's A-U-T-O-M-O-B-I-L-I-T-Y dot substack dot com. So automobility dot substack dot com. Joe and I would love to see you. And from our offices in Sydney, let me say a huge thanks to Sally in California. Thanks, Mark. Great to talk to you both. And special correspondent Drew Smith from Europe. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Sal. It's lovely to be here as always. Before we bring all of this talk about new car designs to a close, we need to look at one more thing. Something no one had predicted, something no one had expected. In the first quarter of 2021, production lines at Ford, GM, and Tesla, they all slowed down dramatically because of a shortage of a key component. Not steel or copper or some fancy nickel alloy used to make the motors, or even the lithium and cobalt in the batteries. It all came down to a shortage of chips. There's a massive global shortfall in semiconductors, far more demand than there is supply, and that's put a stranglehold on parts of the economy that are trying to sputter back to life as the world exits the pandemic. It points to how essential semiconductors have become to everything. And that's a topic for some forthcoming episodes of the next billion seconds. The Next Billion Seconds was written and presented by Mark Pesci, Sally Dominguez, and Drew Smith, producer Alex Mitchell, and sound production Darcy Thompson. If you like this show, hit the subscribe button. And if you know someone who might like it too, please share it with them. For more about the topics in our show, visit our website at nextbillionseconds.com. This is Mark Pesci, thanking you for listening.